bit, if you will. We continue in our, what is going to be a lengthy series of Sunday evening messages on dealing with the subject of evangelism, evangelism episodes, for lack of a better title, to the overall subject from the book of Acts. So far, we have studied how the church got ready in chapter 1, and then the actual beginning of the life-saving, life-changing power of the gospel, the first bit of chapter 2. And you'll remember, Acts is the history of the early church, and we see lived out the doctrine of salvation. This evening, we see that very specifically, the practical outworking of the theology of salvation, namely the elements of salvation. Now, God has so designed many things in the world. In fact, uh, I would say all of the world is designed by the, uh, you can see the orderly hand of God in the design. Just uh, uh, in the music, watching Diana play, there is a specificity of the notes that are played. Obviously, you all know that, and uh, you musicians know it better than the rest of us. I told you that I, <clears throat> I had forgotten how to balance chemical equations, and I have a degree in that, but I've been out of it for 40, 45 years. So, Kathy bought me a, a, a chemical equation workbook, and I've been working through that, and I have been having the best time <laughs> in my spare time balancing chemical equations again. Well, there are elements, no pun intended, <clears throat> there are components to how you go about balancing a chemical equation. It's just not willy-nilly. It's just not, well, I'll do this. No, you're going you're gonna to do something bad if you do that. Um, carbon is a wonderful atom. Nitrogen is a wonderful atom. But when you combine them and you bond them, what do you get? What? Silly putty. Cyanide. And so you need to make sure that the elements, the components, are in the right place musically, chemically, whatever. Relationally, uh, when we take it out of the physical world into the um, interpersonal world. And so here in our text this evening, we see salvation the various components of it. And I, I bring this message so that you will be able to detect as you see a person in the continuum of completely lost and clueless to redeemed, how you will see that played out. And Oksana, I was thinking of your parents again today, how, how we were privileged to see that literally happen before our eyes. It truly is. An amazing thing when a soul is saved. It's a miraculous thing when a soul is saved because God has taken deadness and breathed life into that person right before your eyes. It's, it's, truly, it's truly glorious. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 40. Peter had just preached the gospel of Christ, the resurrected Lord, and he said, and it is said in verse 37, Now when they heard this, Peter's preaching the gospel, they were pricked in their heart 
and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. The salvation of a soul is the consummate example of a miracle that we will see in our day. See, we didn't witness the creation of the universe. I didn't personally witness the resurrection of Christ as, as a, 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 such, a, such a, a momentous time as that would have been. But... I have seen people, and you have seen at least one person, namely yourself, who was walking a path of allegiance to sin and self, going your own way, and then miraculously captured and changed to no longer having allegiance to sin and self, but having allegiance to the Savior and the Scriptures. And you saw that in your own life. Maybe you've seen that take place in other lives as well. I offer a handful of points for the elements. These are the components which accompany every salvation. First of all, the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin must be present, and it is, and it always is, when a soul is saved. Verse 37, when they heard the gospel, they were pricked in the heart. That is, There was conviction, a sense of guilt, a sense of foreboding which came upon those who heard and uh, their hearts were moved with the awareness of their own sinfulness and the need for forgiveness. Peter had just passionately preached the life-saving, life-changing message of Messiah, of the Savior, and proclaimed their guilt for their role in it. Notice in verse 23 of the very same chapter of Acts 2 and verse 23, him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It didn't happen by accident. But you are the ones who have taken him and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They couldn't deny that. And folks, by the way, when I recognized that I was a condemned sinner in the eyes of God, I didn't have any problem at all saying, that is exactly right. That, uh, that is right. Uh, I'm going I'm to take the liberty. I trust this is okay uh, with Scott and Oksana. But when Kathy and I were at their house on New Year's Eve, and the ver- I got into the very first point of the gospel with her parents, uh, and uh, I said, do you recognize, through Oksana translating, do you recognize yourselves uh, to be alienated from God, and why? And her dad said, and Oksana translated, because we are terrible sinners. And I mean fear was in their eyes. They were not, they were not uh, just uh, uh, appeasing us. We are sinners in the eyes of God. And uh, I thought, well, that was an easy hurdle to clear. <laughs> Didn't take any effort to that. And that's how it was with me at the point of conviction. And if you got saved, that's how it was with you at the point of conviction. That you recognize you are lost. And the conviction of sin was very real. And when you have biblical conviction of sin, 
there's no blame shifting. There's no alibying. There's no excusing. It's I am the one who stands condemned um, knowing that there isn't anything I can do about it. I, I uh, uh, hearken back to the testimony of Martin Luther of, of uh, during the, uh, uh, the founder, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation. As a Catholic monk, a priest, uh, someone whose life was completely devoted to this, groping around in the darkness to somehow gain acceptance with God and forgiveness, and everywhere he turned and everywhere he looked, all he saw was his own sin and guilt and condemnation because he stood condemned being an unforgiven sinner. And he providentially came upon the theology, you're only just, you're only justified, what? By faith. The just shall live by faith. And he was converted. So how does God use a soul winner like you in causing a lost person to come to the point of conviction? Well, how did he do it in Acts chapter 2? By presenting biblical truth which sinners have violated. Preaching the law. Taking a person through the Ten Commandments and helping him or her see you have violated the law of God. And when you take uh, someone down that road, only a hard-hearted, stiff-necked fool would say, oh no, I measure up. For Scripture says in James 2.10, and I share this and you know it just by way of reminder, Anyone who says, I can keep the whole law, well, I have broken it here. You're guilty of all. The entire weight and condemnation of the law crushes you because you have not lived perfectly in the eyes of God. And so, there's the conviction of sin. Don't go any further in sharing the gospel until that person is truly saying, I have sinned horribly. Every day, every thought seemingly, every motive is impure in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first point that was dealt with. First condition, first component. Secondly, there's the quickening by the Spirit. Notice at the end of verse 37, and they said, what are we to do? Now, this isn't clearly stated, but clearly we can see it intimated. That is, they became aware of their guilt. It's not just that I admit that I'm a sinner. It's that I am now profoundly aware that God is the judge and I stand condemned. You know, before there were medical tests available, a woman would know conclusively. I mean, there's other things, um, physiological things that will give an indication but when quickening took, took place, when the baby jumped, when the baby moved, aha, we men can't identify, but many of you ladies can identify that first discernible movement of that child in the womb. Anyone identify? I got my hand down. Some, many of you do. You know what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I want to say I wish I knew what you're saying. I, I probably don't wish that. But I believe it. It's a quickening. The word quickening means life. Life is there. And when it happens to a lost sinner, all of a sudden, 
you become aware of your situation. You wake up, the light comes on, as Charles Wesley uh, penned uh, uh, in How Can It Be? The dungeon flamed with light. <laughs> oh, I'm in chains, I'm in bondage. I'm, I've been sentenced to die. I didn't recognize that up to that point. In fact, Ephesians 2.5 says it succinctly. When we were dead, he made us alive in Christ. He quickened us. He brought us to the awareness of the need for forgiveness and life in Christ. Spiritually, it's when the Spirit of God awakens the lost sinner, blows upon the heart, if you will, John 3.8. Blows upon the heart of that lost person, and that person wakes up to the need for forgiveness. <clears throat> Years ago, I witnessed to a, a woman from another, uh, international from another country, Arabic country, probably 50 times over the course of 15 years. We had a close friendship, good, good uh, working relationship and all. And um, this woman would dialogue with me, would ask me questions about the gospel. What about this? What about, and not, uh, not, not, in a, uh, not in a caustic way or a skeptical way, just genuinely asking for information. Never one time did I sense that she came to the point of it being anything more than information, just wanting information. And I would lay out the whole gospel and uh, talk to her about her sin. And human effort and works can never do it because we're not perfect. And the very best we can offer is, is dung in the eyes of the Lord. And there was, never a, a, there was never an aha moment that I ever detected. And so you may share with folks for a long, long time. And, and you might not. And I'm not giving up. I'm just saying I've never, I never saw it in hours and hours of sowing and watering. And that is the case. Not everyone here in Acts chapter 2 got saved. 3,000 did. But not everyone did. You all with me on, on here? So there is the need for that person to experience conviction of sin and then all of a sudden wake up. Not just that I feel bad about it, but I'm alive unto the reality of my situation. Namely, I am hell bound. And then we see in verse 39, the third component, the calling to salvation. Notice in verse 39, the promise is unto you, to whoever will, will, will um, the Lord our God shall call. <clears throat> Some of you in boot, who've been to boot camp can relate to this. When I was in boot camp, everyone was a higher rank than me. I think one time I saluted a flagpole. I think I saluted a trash can, and I heard it, heard it move. Everyone was higher rank. I was a maggot. Say, why would you say that about yourself? Because they all told me I was a maggot. You're, bunch, you're just a bunch of maggots. Get that through your head. We're going to shape you into men, fighting men. But right now, you're a maggot. So I just believed him. And everyone was higher, higher ranked than me. But when we were in formation, it didn't matter if the president himself were to walk in 
while we were in formation, we only heard the voice of one commander, and that is our company commander. And whatever the order was, we obeyed that order. We were conditioned. We were brainwashed by the end of boot camp into doing just that. Until our company commander was duly and properly relieved by someone of a higher rank, we only listened to that call. When that call went out, we heard it. And the drill instructors would mess with one another. We would multiple, eight, ten, fifteen units would be marching on this same grinder, is what they called, a massive asphalt paved area. I mean, when I say massive, 20 football fields massive. And we're marching around, and we would go by another platoon, and another platoon director, super, supervisor, would call out our platoon number, platoon 1001, to the rear, march. And the first week, you would do it. Some of you would do it, and it's like herding cats <laughs> when that happened. By the fifth or sixth week, no one, no one tricked us. No, we heard the discernible call of our company commander. Y'all follow that? And that is what takes place in salvation. You hear the call once you've been awakened to it. Once you've been made alive unto it. Two types of calls. First of all, the very first one that goes out is the general, external warning. The principle of Romans 1, where creation and conscience declare that God is. And then more specifically, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We beg you in Christ that be you reconciled to God. So there is a, a, an external call that, that goes out to everyone. In fact, Scripture says that he commands all men everywhere to repent. There is a general call that goes out to every particular person. That general call went out to the thousands and thousands who were gathered there on the day of Pentecost. But there were 3,000 who received a specific internal call. That is, God tugged at my heart. And in fact, Jesus said this is exactly how it would be. He said, no one's going to come to salvation unless that person is drawn. For John 6, says, no one can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. So there is the internal calling in, on the soul, uh, the, the dead spirit, if you will, of that lost person. And everyone who's ever become a believer has received that calling ending up resulting in salvation. First Peter 2.9 says that God has called you out of darkness. Did I not have? Oh, no. Romans 8.30. Same, same, same uh, uh, idea. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, and presumably we're talking about everyone he predestinated, he also called. And everyone he called, he also, in fact, justified were saved. There weren't any lost. All that the Father gives me, what? Shall come to me. And those who do come to me, what? I will never cast out. So all who were predestinated, predetermined that I'll set my love upon him or her, 
In the course of time, that person is called. And having been called, that person, in fact, believes unto salvation. Romans 8.30 clearly teaches that. And then 1 Peter, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I had that up, did I? Yeah, I did. 1 Peter 2.9, I'm way ahead of myself, sorry. Says that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse 39 of our text says that as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so for you, you were called unto salvation. But let me let you in on, on something as well. So that you do not have misplaced guilt, um, pressure on you that is not yours to carry. And it's this. You cannot call somebody. You can only extend and broadcast the seed. You all hear me? I can't change a heart. I can't turn the light on. And if I know that, then my evangelism is following a path of purity, not of self-effort, not of trying to manipulate or any such thing. So the pressure is off of you. The pressure is off of me. My, the pressure on me is to obey what he tells me to, obey, uh, to do, and that is to share, to live a life which gives credibility to the gospel and to share the components, the elements of salvation. God must do this work. In fact, uh, I'll share it in just a minute. But salvation is of the Lord, Jonah, verse chapter 2 and verse 9. So, the person's received this call, he's convicted, and now there's a commitment. There's actually a calling upon him. Verse 38, Peter said unto them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Verse 40, and with many other words, he did testify and exhort Save yourselves. And then, verse 41, I didn't include in this, those who gladly received his word. Those who truly believed. Yes, we are embracing the gospel. There must be a a commitment. It doesn't happen by osmosis for the transaction of salvation to take place. The lost person is responding in faith. Now, what that looks like is going to be different in every situation. No two childbirths are exactly the same. But it took place. The baby is born. And there's life. Uh, visible life. There was life in that case before birth, but we understand that. Now, what is that commitment? Well, this is what is emphasized in the text. Uh, there's the salvation is, uh, uh, is of the Lord in Jonah 2.9. Um, repentance from sin. If the commitment is going to be genuine, there is repentance. And by the way, folks, repentance is not a pre-salvation self-effort to clean up my life in order to be presentable to God. It's not that you say to a lost man, okay, get your, get your life in order so that you can uh, be, be viewed as acceptable before God. No, no, no. That is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is... I can't be acceptable. I'm not acceptable, and I am turning from that unacceptable way. I'm renouncing it. I'm saying, no, no, no. Religion, whatever it might be, can't get me there. But there is a way which is right and which is saving. I am turning from this, and I'm turning to that. There's biblical repentance. And unless it is present, then you're 
turning to something, but you're not turning from something. And, and Scripture teaches uh, just the opposite of that. In fact, we're reminded in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and, and this is poignant for this point. They turned to God, but they turned from their own way, from idolatry, from religion, from self-effort. They turned to Him to serve Him and not any longer serve self. So there is and must be repentance. In fact, it says in Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness, maybe a better word is kindness of God, which even allows you to repent. You see, it takes God to know God. Hence His calling, hence His waking you up and granting a heart to repent. At the point of salvation for me, uh, pushing 46 years ago, I was, I literally counted the cross and I said, I'll give up anything and everything to have everlasting life because I don't have any other means of having it. And I am in a position where judgment could fall at any moment were it not the long-suffering hand of God holding that off. And so there was a repentance. Um, Acts eleven eighteen tells us very clearly, theologically, God is the one who grants repentance resulting in life. So if a person that with whom, to whom you're witnessing is at, this point, at that point, then simply share. Will you turn from anything that you are, you are, you're holding on to, you're trusting, in which you're trusting, in which you're relying uh, upon for salvation, and renounce that and, and cut that away from you, reject it, and only and solely turn to Him alone who can save you and who will save you if you, in fact, turn from your own way. So it's repentance from sin and, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, it's faith toward God. It's believing the, the, the message of salvation that you turn from one and turn to the other. And of course, uh, it's faith toward God, not a generic God, but the God of the Bible. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, of all those who in the world who would believe. And we see that spelled out in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith. You've heard me teach this a number of times, but it can't be said enough. And that... The antecedent is faith, and even the faith is not of yourselves. The faith is a gift of God. And so you see, repentance is a gift unto life. Faith is granted unto those he has called, he has woken, he's woken up, and he has called, and they respond. Now, from the disposition of the lost sinner, for me anyway, and for, for most, I would think, you have the idea that you are reaching toward him because you don't know anything. You're still dead at that point when in reality he has captured you and is drawing you to himself. You all appreciate that? And so the fact of the matter is it's just simple faith. It is saying with childlike faith as you would cry out to daddy as a four-year-old when you're having a nightmare, save me because you believe daddy is strong enough to fight off <clears throat> any of the boogeymen in your closet or under your bed. And you are genuine when you call upon 
your parent to save you, right? Can you remember when I was six years old? Uh, my mom could not swim in waist deep water, never was able to her entire life. And we're down uh, in the little blue uh, river, right underneath the old red bridge. And we're wading out there as four and five and six years old, six year olds. And of course, I'm the only boy at that time. And you know how boys are at six years old. Uh, you act first, maybe never think, but you definitely don't think first. And I didn't. And I got on my little uh, uh, rubber ducky floatable thing. And I'm thinking that uh, that's going to take care of me. And so I just kind of push off out into water well over my head and up to about her neck. Uh, and I'm, going, I'm being carried down Little blue, blue River. No one else around. And my two other four- and seven-year-old sisters were there on the bank. So my mom had a choice. And, I, of course, I'm screaming bloody murder. You know? <laughs> Look what I've got myself into now. She leaves the two girls. Of course she can leave girls. They're not going to do anything wrong. <laughs> and she goes waiting out until she is shoulder deep. And I mean, it was bad, scary stuff. But I only had one person that I could trust who loved me enough, cared for me enough, who would actually do something as crazy as risk her own life to save me. That is biblical repentance and faith toward the Savior. Okay? By the way, she, she rescued me, in case you were wondering. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> 60 years later, I'm here. Uh, okay, and, and it wasn't funny at the moment, uh, the commitment. And then there will be confirmation. If it was genuine, if it was sincere, there will be confirmation of that. We see that at verse 38. We see that going into verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. Now, baptism is tied very closely here to a redeemed life. Why? Because in first century Jerusalem, if you got baptized because of the, uh, the work of Christ, you might as well count your life goodbye. Your family is going to disown you. They're going to alienate from you. You're losing your job. You may be killed. I mean, it was bad, bad news for everyone around you who was lost if you were going to get baptized. It was a serious commitment. <clears throat> Some have mistakenly tied baptism as one of the elements of salvation could not be further from theological reality. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because I've been baptized, therefore I'm righteous. No, no, no. A million times no. It has to do with the, the terminology. And the key word, if you'll notice in verse 38, be baptized, every one of you, in the King James, for the remission of sins. Do you have another preposition? What do you have? Another preposition in verse 38? What is it? In? I-N? Okay. Let me, uh, uh, I hadn't heard that one, but okay. I, I believe you. And, and uh, there's, lots of, uh, there's lots of appropriate prepositions that could be used. It's a Greek uh, preposition, eis, E-I-S. And it can be for, at, because of, as a result of. Let me give you some examples. Luke 11.32 says, that the people of Nineveh repented 
ice at the preaching of Jonah. Greek New Testament, it's the same language, no problem there. And clearly, it means that they repented because of or as a result of. They didn't repent um, uh, for Jonah. You wouldn't use for. And uh, uh, the, um, some of the English translations use that word. They translate it as for, F-O-R. Probably uh, it would be better. Certainly, it would be, it'd be less confusing if, uh, if it were translated as a result of or something along that line. So, 238 should reasonably be understood to say, repent, be baptized as a result of the remission of sins. If you've truly been forgiven, then you will confirm that by publicly being baptized, identifying with Christ. That's the means, he has said, to identify with him. Theologian F.F. Bruce wrote, baptism in water is the inward visible sign by which individuals who believe the gospel are publicly incorporated into the Spirit-baptized fellowship. You're baptized in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, at the point of salvation. Being water-baptized publicly states, I'm, I'm unapologetically and unashamedly identifying with who Christ is and what He did. And for us in our day, that is not such a huge sacrifice in most cases. First century Jerusalem, that was a massive deal. And yet 3,000 of them in one moment did that. Richard D. Hahn wrote, Baptism then is a testimony of our death to sin, the old man is crucified, of our severance from its domination, and of our pledge to live new lives through our faith union with Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a sincere confirmation that God has done a work, a saving work in my heart. So by way of review, the person needs to be confronted with the law. God must do a quickening, waking that person up by what you've shared in in breaking the will and, and the ways of God. And there is a tug at the heart to come to him in faith. There is, in fact, the commitment calling upon him, for with the heart a person believes unto righteousness, resulting in salvation. And and then we will see a demonstration of that. And I so appreciate uh, the the morning uh, following, not 18 hours later, Oksana's uh, parents uh, openly testified before us we called upon Christ to forgive us and make us His own. And, um, and, and, and in no time, there was a hunger. Uh, Scott, you all uh, uh, connected them with the Ukrainian version of uh, J. Vernon McGee's Bible teaching program. Uh, Through the Bible, I think it's called. The Ukrainian version. And so they started taking in the tr- No church, no Bible-believing church in the whole area. To which uh, maybe no believers. This, uh, this was a, a former so- Soviet bloc, communist bloc area. But yet they are there shining as light in a dark and desperate and dangerous world. To God be the glory. The elements, the components of salvation realized right here in this congregation recently. Would that God would allow us to regularly, 
to turn that faucet on strong that we might see folks come to know him on a regular basis. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word and what we see. Uh, it's, this is old material. We know this. We've studied this. I've preached this, but it is such a need for a reminder. I've needed it. Your people here, certainly. We can, we can get busy. We can be involved in, in church life and with brothers and sisters in Christ in our, our year of members one of another. We are focused on that, but that begins with salvation. Being a part of the body begins with being uh, brought in and uh, part uh, grafted in, as uh, the illustration is used of the, the wild uh, branch grafted in to the olive tree. And so, Lord, use us. Use your people in this place toward that end. And uh, you'll, be, uh, you'll be praised. You'll be, uh, we'll rejoice in you for what you will do in and through your people. Lord, uh, don't let this just be another message heard, but may, we, may I apply the, these principles, these components, um, in my day-to-day coming and going, interacting, interfacing with this world to share the liberating truth of the gospel, Lord Jesus, for your glory.